Hey everybody and welcome to episode 18 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel we have Pete Hodgson. Hello from San Francisco, I can't think of anything funny to say. Andrew Madsen. Hi from Salt Lake City. Ben Sherman. Hello from Houston. James Uber. Hello from Minneapolis. Rod Schmidt. Hello from Salt Lake. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv and this week we have a special guest and that's Ken. Is it our... That's, cor- that's correct, and I'm in Holly Springs, North Carolina. Awesome. So we brought you on the show today to talk about software craftsmanship. Good. That's what I came for. Oh, good. You mean cowboy coding? Cowboy coding. Not at all. <laughs> Don't make him get his gun. <laughs> so uh, do you want to just explain what software craftsmanship is? Well, in a nutshell, I would say caring about the craft and what you're what you're doing uh, in how you're building your software. Uh, I I tend to come from the school that software craftsmanship, uh, as opposed to the people who software craftsmen impress other people with how much they know. <laughs> I like that. I I know a lot of the latter. I know a few of the former too. So I've talked to a few people about. Software craftsmanship before. The one that comes to mind first off is Micah Martin, who's Uncle Bob's son, um, over at Eighth Light. And when, when, when I talked to him, he actually mentioned the manifesto for software craftsmanship. Is, is that something that you try and stand by? And is there, is there a lot of culture and I'm trying to think of what the right word is, sort of like the Agile manifesto where there's all of this extra stuff around it. Does the software craftsmanship kind of have that as well? Well, uh, I think uh, really the Software Craftsmanship Manifesto, uh, if I understand it right, because I wasn't there when they put it up, it was really just about saying, you know, software people are often, you know, just given, treated like mushrooms, you know, shove them in the dark in a corner, feed them, and uh, hopefully they'll grow. And the whole idea was, you know, this is something that we should be proud of and, and, and do well. And... um when the Agile Manifesto came out, a lot of people hijacked that and said, oh, this is this is an excuse to not do documentation and do a lot of things, that see that the pants coding uh, that we've done forever and justify it. And I think the idea of the Software Crafting Manifesto said, no, 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 no. It wasn't about programmers ruling the world and, and doing what we feel like. It was really about caring about what we're building. And that somehow can get lost in the Agile Manifesto. You can supposedly be doing... Uh, in, in many people's eyes, be doing what Agile says. And it was really kind of a, a response to people adopting Agile and just doing software very poorly. Yeah, the manifesto definitely reads like it's an addendum to the Agile yeah. manifesto. Like not only working software, but well-crafted software. Uh, not only responding to change, but steadily adding value. I, I do think that it's kind of like when the Agile manifesto came out, there was these things on the left and things on the right and when you look at them listed like that, well, of course you want the things on the right. Whereas this is this is just saying it's kind of like a uh, an asterisk by each one of the terms and saying you know this doesn't give you an excuse to uh, let's say just change software for the sake of changing it, but or or rather make everything pluggable for the sake of making it pluggable, but only if you're adding value that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, actually, so you mentioned Micah. Uh, I had a um, little workshop in around 2002 or so, just called the Software Apprentice Workshop, because I w- I've been doing, have been taking on apprentices for quite a long time and thought it was time to talk about it more in the industry because I was fed up with this stuff that was coming out of colleges, quite honestly. 
And uh, I couldn't afford to pay people who didn't know what they were doing as much as they thought they were worth. So I started apprenticing and um, had this workshop and, and invited Bob Martin. And he said, I'd like to bring my son with me. I said, sure. And uh, Micah came and a few years later, he told me uh, he had started Eighth Light and I was his inspiration. I said, wow, I didn't think you were paying attention. So it was kind of neat to, uh, to hear that some of what we did during that little workshop took, took root. That's awesome. That's a cool story. But, uh, you know, really, when I started my company in 97, I'd already come to the point that, of realization that the stuff that I was doing, the stuff that was being taught in schools was so far different. And also had come from a pretty collaborative environment where we really lifted each other up and really cared about what we're doing. And when I started my, my new company, I wanted uh, that environment plus some. And when I got to the point where I said, man, I need help here. I couldn't afford to, to hire somebody already skilled because I just didn't have enough contracts going. So I hired an apprentice and uh, saw how well that worked and just kept doing it for, for many years. And I, don't, I won't go back now. So can you can you go into I, this is the, the I think the part of the software craftsmanship thing that I find really interesting is the the apprenticeship the model which I, I guess kind of uh, harkens back to like actual craftsmen that worked with their hands kind of thing like people making furniture and, and stuff like that can you talk some more about how that how that works Yeah sure there's a actually many years ago when uh, I was trying to figure out what would a software studio look like. I was pointing to this book called Situated Learning, and well, the title is actually really long. It's like Situated Learning, Legitimate Peripheral Participation, Perens, Learning and Doing, colon, Social, Cognitive, and Computational Perspectives, which is a really long way of saying learning by being there. Um, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> but is the whole that's how I learned. Like that? <laughs> yeah, well, um, you know, it's actually a really interesting book. Uh, it, and it, and it's a study of several different participation, uh, several, several different, uh, industries where learning by quote participation was supposed to be happening and, and did some studies of, uh, even a butcher shop, how they supposedly had an apprenticeship, but one place where the butchers were in a different room than the apprentices and another place where the butchers were in the same room as the apprentices and the huge difference in what was happening. So, uh, it's, it's really important just to, to, be in a place where context matters. Yeah, I've picked up a lot of things just by listening to other developers. You know, when I was learning, just listening to the new people talk and just picking up what they're how they're approaching a problem. So I think that's definitely valid. Yeah. So the um, the one thing that uh, so uh, Andrew Hunt, one of the signers of the Agile Manifesto, um, many people know about Pragmatic Programmers Bookshelf and all. He he wrote a book uh, a few years ago called Pragmatic Thinking and Learning, and it's that. all about. How, you know, really try to rewire your brain to get beyond the idea of being an advanced beginner, whereas an advanced beginner is a guy who follows the rules and doesn't necessarily know what they're doing and, you know, the context matters. And the, the thing that that book doesn't address, though, it's really more kind of rewiring yourself to think outside the box, but it doesn't really say, okay, how do you get in a situation where you learn about context mattering. And, and uh, to me, apprenticeship that answers that question that is unasked in that book. It's amazing what I've seen in, in having apprentices in our shop, what they pick up in three to six months that a lot of people don't pick up in three to six years. I'll go someplace else on a consulting gig and start trying to work with somebody who's been in the industry for, for a while. And it's amazing how many bad habits they've picked up and instilled that nobody's ever told them that's not a good way to do that. 
whereas the apprentices in our shop, you know, they get slapped around in three to six months and told that's not a good way to do that. Uh, not literally. Please don't uh, <laughs> send anybody after me. So are they um, are, are they kind of like totally blank slates, like fresh out of uh, high school, or are they folks that have been doing programming and are interested in starting it as a career, or how how's the how's that work? The answer to that one's yes. Um, <laughs> it really could be anybody. One thing I, I did an experiment uh, before I got my first apprentice, thinking, okay, I'm going to take somebody from scratch and teach them everything, and found that the teaching them if then else and while and all that kind of stuff for people who've never seen it before is uh, something I didn't really want to spend my energy on. So I found that instead finding somebody who knew the basic mechanics, however they learned it, doesn't really matter how they learned it, whether they took a course, whether they picked up a book. You know, I tell people programming is like, like basketball. There's only about seven fundamental things you ever do, but you've got to get to the point where you're fluid at it before somebody's willing to pay you to do it. Right. So you've got to be able to, you know, take those fundamental pieces that you can learn anywhere, but now it's about applying it, you know, in the game, as I would say. So I, I guess my question is, as you bring on an apprentice, you get them to the point where they become, I think the next level is journeyman. And, uh, and then once they're a journeyman for a while, eventually they master the craft and they become a craftsman. So I, I have to, I have to ask this. I'm, I'm just curious. At what level do you consider somebody a craftsman? Another way of asking this question is, what does their code look like? What what behaviors do they have as a craftsman? Yeah, I think it goes well beyond code. I mean, there's there's guys who can write nice, clean code, but put them in a room with a client and they have no idea, you know, they're just insulting the client or not paying attention or whatever. You know, to me, a craftsman is somebody who does the whole package, you know, goes from somebody with an idea to turning it into something that's useful for them. So uh, there's a lot of pieces to that. Now, of course, I'm in the software services business where we do that. So maybe, you know, there'd be craftsmen who just get handed specs under a door and, and they're still craftsmen, but uh, not in my world. But, you know, really it gets to the point where can I trust them with any project? You know, if, if somebody came in and said, I need software to write, they say, sure, I can do that. And you know that they can. That's, that's how I would define a craftsman. Um, and they can do it, of course, with quality and, and something that they don't have to apologize for afterwards. Interesting. So can you tell if somebody, I, I, I know you kind of answered this in the sense that, you know, they need to be able to talk to a client. They need to be able to boil down, you know, a problem into code. But can you look at somebody's code and get an idea that they are or aren't a craftsman? Uh, you can certainly get an idea that they're not. Um, <laughs> we have plenty of cases of that. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, you know, I, I'm certainly, uh, I, I don't spend a whole lot of time looking at people's code when I'm interviewing them. Uh, typically, the way I interview anybody is I bring them into pair program with us for, for a day or two. And um, you don't just see what they code, but how they code, how they approach problems, how they think. Um, are they willing to learn? Are they uh, open to other people's ideas? There's no way you can do that in an interview on paper looking at somebody's code. I've had some, you know, guys who, you know, they look great on GitHub, but you bring them in and they just don't know how to interact with anybody. And uh, you're not even, you know, starting to wonder whether the code in GitHub came from them or somewhere else. Yeah, we do the same thing at ThoughtWorks. That's like the, the, the most valuable thing for us. In, well, for me, I think when we're interviewing people is, is, is pairing with them. And it's, it really is impressive or it's, 
it's interesting how quickly you can get a feel for for, for how how it would be to work with someone day to day just just by pairing with them for even just a couple of hours. Yeah, not just pairing with them to to have you work, but uh, just how they think, you know. And, and uh, I've had people come in and you know say, okay, we're going to do something in iOS, and uh, well, you know, I, I don't know Objective C. That's not a problem. We're going to approach a problem together and write through it, and you know, we'll help you with the syntax. That's that's not even important right now. Now, of course, yeah. I learned that they don't. I, of course, I learned they don't know Objective C, but you know, it's, that's okay. That's just one piece of you know one piece of skills that they need to know. But you can see how quickly they pick it up. Um, and that's that's, I mean, that's over Ruby or whatever. I almost feel like that's a more important or as important a skill anyway for someone in the in the software industry is is how how quickly can they synthesize new ideas because you know they're not going to be writing Objective C with the same APIs for the next five years of their life or maybe maybe they'll still be doing objective c but you know part of our challenge as software people is having to learn new stuff all the time well and at the risk of uh sounding a little bit snobbish i guess a lot of times i'll bring people in a pair program with them and really what i'm looking for beyond what we've talked about is can i stand to sit by this guy for another 10 minutes that's not snobbish though you got to work with those people like if if someone's not that's i mean i guess that's like uh, Ken was kind of getting at with saying part of being in professional services is not just writing, slinging good code. It's also being able to interact with people. And part of doing good agile software development is a lot of, you know, individuals and interactions. So, uh, if you, if you can't interact with people, then it doesn't matter how good you are at writing code. Yeah. One example of this, I can just tell real quickly. I had a subcontractor last year and, uh, we were working with a very large company in Colorado building a, a portal for them. And the project manager we were working with, he was kind of picking things up as we went and wanted to be involved. And, you know, I basically just explained to him, you can do that, but we're going to bill you for anything that you do that we wind up having to fix if it's not right because the code has to be right. And he was totally fine with that because he kind of came to it with the apprentice mindset. Well, I explained this to my subcontractor and uh, what happened was at one point, the client came back and asked a couple of questions about the code and this uh, um, the subcontractor basically told him, well, pull the latest changes and, you know, kind of basically told him he couldn't believe that he didn't think of doing this himself. And, uh, yeah, needless to say, before the client even complained to me about it, he was gone. And it, it really does just come down to there's more to this than just the writing code because the guy wrote good code but the problem was is that he was deliberately kind of bashing on the head of the client you just can't deal with that i don't deal with that so anyway it 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 really is important to have those and and it's in the manifesto here it's to have those productive partnerships with your clients with your customer i think that goes beyond i mean like i think a lot of us on this call are are kind of in the consulting uh contracting side of things but even if you're you know, a full-time employee at a product company and you're building software. If you don't have empathy for your users, then you're not going to build great software for them. And yeah. I think all of that stuff comes down to empathy. If someone doesn't have empathy for the people they work with or the people who they're building software for, then uh, they might write an awesome algorithm, but that uh, algorithm isn't going to add value. It's going to be was a amazing. cool algorithm. It's amazing me when I go work in some uh, some uh, larger organizations. Typically, in smaller organizations, they don't last that long. But in larger organizations, you can find people who 
you know, it's just a job for them. You know, they're, they're doing what they do to keep their job and they, they don't particularly care about their users or anything like that. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's really amazing how many times the folks who don't care about their users aren't very good coders, uh, in spite of what they say. And they may have a reputation for being good coders, but when you go look in their code, all, the, all it shows is they're smarter than some of the other guys as far as being able to sling out an algorithm. But you know, their code's not readable because they don't, they don't care if somebody else is coming behind them to read it. They're just doing their job, right? And uh, it's just, uh, that's I guess that's really the idea of software craftsmanship. Do you love what you're doing or, or is it a job that pays well? Well, the other thing that I think is interesting about that, because I've worked at a handful of companies that had they had guys that were really, you know, I, I, what I think of as software craftsmen, or at least they, they're well on their way. And then there were the other guys that were just there to do the job. You know, they were just there to basically put in eight hours and collect a paycheck. And not only did you see the kinds of things that you're explaining here, but in, in those companies, a lot of times there were other problems that eventually all of the guys that were sort of the software craftsmen or on their way to that, they left because of those reasons. And these other guys stuck around until it got so painful that there was just no way that even a sane person would stay. And so it's it's interesting that uh, the the software craftsmen tend to want to go where they're appreciated and where they can actually apply their craft and be part of the community and, you know, add value and be appreciated for it. And I think that's the same in just about any any industry. It's amazing as I've gone through this and done apprenticeship, a lot of folks, we're, we, uh, we homeschool our kids and we have a lot of folks who are trying to... Uh, in, in our homeschool community trying to figure, okay, how do I guide my, my children, not just through academics at the, you know, primary and secondary level, but, uh, beyond that. And, um, you know, they're fascinated by this. And then as I talk to them about the people in their industries, they say the same thing. It's universal. You know, mm-hmm. the people who care about their craft rise to the top and they can't stay at a place where it's not happening. And I, I have a lot of friends who are in the medical community. We write some medical software and then I just have some others. Uh, that I know and, and the same thing. It's, it's the doctors who are really good at them at, at what they do are, are struggling with how do I actually like, care for patients these days? <laughs> because there's so much bureaucracy and things that are put in the way of really, uh, caring for your patients and that it drives them crazy. And I've found some of, several of them recently that are doing pretty innovative things. Um, my daughter just started going to a chiropractor who just says everything's direct pay. You pay by the month. You're, you're a subscriber here. You use it, use this like you use a gym. He has no paperwork. He never deals with insurance agencies and it's a lot cheaper and he's sane and he's loving it. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I actually am in a mastermind group with a doctor and a nurse and uh, the nurse has chosen to go out of her way to, uh, to put up a podcast. It's one love for nursing, um, dot com or dot org. I don't remember. I'll have to look. Um, and then there's another doctor who has, he, he cares so much for people and feels like the, the industry and the government and all the regulations have made it so impossible that he's actually tried, he's trying to move on to other parts of his career to try and serve people that way. And it's, it's really interesting to see how people approach that. I think the doctor nursing thing is, is really interesting. So my wife is a, is a nurse and her going through nursing school kind of actually made me think a lot about this, this kind of craftsmanship apprenticeship thing. Cause the nursing profession versus nurses versus doctors is a very different style of learning. And, and, and nursing is, is all about empathy and, and caring for your patients and is very, very user focused, I suppose you could say. 
and it's a lot of apprenticeship. It's a lot of learning by doing and being on the ward and doing things. And um, doctors, uh, you know, obviously doctors are awesome, amazing people and don't want to kind of disrespect them. But I think uh, they the way that they learn is very, very is very, very different, and it kind of disconnects them a little bit from their users compared to uh, compared to nurses. Like a nurse. Although probably, in a lot I, of ways, the, uh, the medical profession, the doctors, I mean, they, they go yeah. through all this internship. It's required to spend time contextual learning uh, in their world. Uh, you, know, you know, whether they have to, some of the contextual learning they deal with is all the silliness from the regulations or not, but uh, they are doing the contextual learning in that in that process. Yeah, true. So one thing I've wondered about software craftsmanship over the last few years, it's been several years since I talked to anybody about it. I'm really curious to know, have there been sort of these, what what's the word, me- methodologies, I guess, sort of like Scrum or extreme programming or whatever that have come out of Agile? Are there corollaries or, I'm not even sure what the right word is, um, but are there are there things like that that have come out of software craftsmanship? There's a handful of those things that are out there. Um, one, one of the things that's, uh, oh man, I'm blanking out what we call them. The things where you just uh, go off and, and code. Um, code retreat. Not, yeah, code retreat, but not to code retreats. is uh, That's one thing that folks are doing. But it's the, um, oh, the katas, code katas. Oh, yes. That right. um, just basically say, let's get better and better at this by going over the same code multiple multiple times. You know, just doing coding for the sake of tuning your Tuning your skills just as if, if you're doing, you know, if you're a guitarist, you would, uh, do scales or whatever else you're going to be doing. So, um, that's something that's come out. Uh, you know, I, personally, to me, I, I don't participate in that a whole lot. I mean, I've definitely done them a couple times, but to me, it's just, hey, get your code done and do it well and have it reviewed by somebody and learn from people in context. You know, one of the things that I found years ago that kind of got lost uh, from some of the early talks about extreme programming, is when Kent Beck articulated extreme programming, he said, look, take all the best practices we know about software and turn the knobs up to 10. That's what makes it extreme. So what's the best practice in programming? One of the things that we learned, people who did studies uh, to try to find out how do you get good quality software, most of them were expecting that testing was going to be the number one uh, contributor to good quality. And time and again, they found out that actually code reviews was a bigger contributor. So they said, if code reviews is important, let's turn the knobs up to 10. And, you know, what better way to do a code review than a real-time code review, whether it's pair programming or just, hey, I just did this the last hour. Could somebody look at it for me? I think that's just a huge, huge thing. And it's amazing how many times when I just even know that somebody's going to review my code. Right. <laughs> I, I think that's half of what makes code reviews a big contributor. If you know that somebody's going to review your code, you're going to clean it up. Right. You don't want to see somebody have somebody see your worst code. And people know how to clean up code if they think about it. So uh, I would say that's one of the biggest things that I, I don't see talked about as much in the software craft community. I think it should be. I've noticed that same phenomenon with open source software. Like people will uh, do a better job with open, definitely for pull requests, but but just in general, when people are writing open source, they, I think, tend to write a little bit more, be more fastidious in their quality because they know that potentially loads of people who, you know, loads of their peers are going to be picking through this code and they don't want to look stupid. Absolutely. (laughs) We've had a lot of success with that, with the uh, pull request based code review stuff. Uh, We do a a fair amount of pair programming, but we don't have like a hard and fast rule that says like 100% pair programming. But the whole pull request thing, just like, 
And it's not, it's not one of those things where you're like, oh, we don't trust you. You have to have all your code reviewed. It's more, more like a, a culture of, you know, we want somebody to give us, uh, their guidance and their feedback on our code because we're all concerned with quality. And, uh, the whole GitHub pull request workflow is, has worked out really well for us. Uh, yeah, with that's that. certainly, that is certainly a big contributor to being able to do, that's one of the few tools I've seen that electronic means really does help. I mean, some people talk about, oh, anybody can work from wherever we want. Remote workers are great and blah, 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 blah. It's like, well, if the code's not getting reviewed on a, on a tight loop, you're missing a lot. Uh, I don't, I still don't think there's anything to replace having the people in the same room and, and having frequent interaction. But, you know, we have times, quite honestly, you know, we have a bunch of people in the same room and they don't talk to each other long, you know, and, and I'll say, Hey guys, anybody working together today? <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, my favorite is my favorite is everyone with huge earphones on talking to each other via uh, IRC. Isn't that what we're doing better, right now? Uh, yeah, that's what we're doing right now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, at least we're using our voices. Yeah, I've I've also uh, seen pair programming stand in for um, code reviews, and uh, that makes a lot of difference too. And you get real time feedback, which is also nice. And that's a great way to teach uh, teach the apprentices. One of the things that uh, you know. We, Talked about interviewing folks and pair programming with guys to figure out are they craftsmen or, or how close are they to being craftsmen. For the apprentices, we find that, uh, well, pair programming is great, but, you know, I'm pair programming with somebody who's brand new and their eyes glaze over in a little while. You know, I'm just going to provide, you know, the, the, the amount of wisdom that I spew out in such a short period of time just blows them away, right? But, uh, you're supposed to laugh. Um, there's a, yeah, there's a statement. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, seriously, the young guys, they're just, they're just, they're getting too much at a time. So what I'll often do is we'll pair a program for a little while. I'll let them go write code and, you know, in an hour they'll write code that might have taken me five minutes and they'll write it poorly. But then it only takes about five minutes to clean it up and show them, okay, here's why I would have done it this way. And, oh, this part's over here is good. Oh, wow, that's really clever. I hadn't thought about that. That's a different way of approaching it that I'll have to consider. You know, so we have our craftsmanship academy that we've, we've offered and uh, we'll, we'll be doing again sometime soon where we basically a 12-week immersion where I just give them a series, actually the same problem over again in multiple languages and then extending things to it. And while they're doing it, one of the biggest things I do in the academy is every few hours I come in and say, okay, who has, who's got some code for me to review? Put it up on the screen, go through it, discuss why I changed this, why did I do this this way, why I do it that way. And then the next code I review, boy, it's getting, it's getting a little better. And then, you know, so I just, I just do code reviews every every few hours and most of the people who've been in that say, wow, that is the most invaluable piece. It's not the rest of the curriculum. It's not the other things that I do. You know, I certainly put other, other pieces into the academy, but that's the one piece that I don't know how you replace that. You can't do that through GitHub. You can't do that by reading news groups. You can't do it any other way. And is that mob kind of like mob code reviews where you throw it up on a projector and the whole group kind of talks about it together? Well, sometimes I do it that way. As the, as the Craftsmanship Academy goes further, uh, I'll, I'll ask people, okay, so what's wrong with this code? And they'll tell me. Other times I'll, I'll tell them. Uh, it really depends on what we're starting with. But, uh, you know, in, in that kind of situation, I mean, I'm the craftsman and they're the apprentices. So my word's right, even if it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and typically in that case, it is. Uh, you know, when I'm working with journeymen and others, that they'll send it. Maybe it'll, uh, maybe I'll be wrong more often. But, uh, I, yeah, it, just the fact that everybody's seeing it and, and watching the process of reviewing it and, and hearing the discussions and 
and even the interactions and questions. Well, yeah, but I, I understand what you're saying, but I was thinking this. Okay, well, let me explain to you why you were thinking wrong. Or let me explain to you why, you know, that's a good train of thought, but you, you just fail to take this, this piece of information into account. So one of the things you said there was uh, interesting when you were kind of saying that uh, pairing with, with someone who's really junior when you're really senior sometimes doesn't work. And I think, I don't know, I'm pretty sure this isn't an original idea, but a, a colleague of mine was talking about that, you know, there's that kind of the Dreyfus, um, the Dreyfus model and that you referenced that earlier, talking about pragmatic thinking and learning, this idea that you're kind of on different uh, different rungs on the ladder of of, of being of a, of a skill. So you might be a beginner at objective C or you might be kind of pretty good or like eventually you're like the, the grand wizard master. Right. And, um, um, my friend was kind of, uh, saying that he thinks that if the, if the gap between those two levels, between the two pairs is too much, then it's not an effective way of, of learning. Uh, but also if the gap isn't, isn't that far at all, then it's not an effective way of learning. So, um, or not as effective. So two, you know, two very junior people pairing together will, will be productive, but they're not going to be, um, in like super intense learning mode. Two senior people pairing together won't be, and a really junior person and a really senior person maybe won't be because, um, like you say, like the junior person is kind of having their hair blown back and doesn't really understand what's going on. But if you take a mid-level guy and pair him up with a junior person, then I think that, that probably is the most effective way for both of those people to, to learn together. Yeah, the, the, the gap is significant. And also the, the people who are pair programming, you know, uh, I've been doing this long enough that I can pair pretty well with a junior person. There's other folks in, in our shop who are probably better programmers than I am that don't do as good a job of pairing with somebody. You know, so some of it is just, you know, recognizing how do you adjust to the person you're working with. But there is that gap. And I said, one of the things I've, I've learned to do is just do it in small doses with small people, with the uh, small people, with the uh, young people. Um, <laughs> Yes, and, and just, you know, you can deal with the gap in understanding by making the time gaps larger or smaller. So the time gap in between allows people to review what you just wrote in front of them and, and learn it and, and grasp it, where a more experienced person will, will grok it very quickly. What, one other thing I want to add to this is that if two senior people are getting together, there's not just one skill set that's like, boom, programming. There are a lot of different skills related to programming. So um, I may be, a, you know, a kind of a craftsman level at, you know, one aspect of programming, but somebody else is way ahead of me or at least far enough ahead of me to really help me out with maybe, I don't know, configuring my text editor or, um, you know, setting up uh, continuous integration or whatever. And so um, a lot of times what I wind up doing, because I feel like I am kind of at that senior level, at least in the technologies that I program in, is I'll find people who who have that seniority in an, in an area where I feel like I'm still journeyman or beginner, and I'll work things out with them so that we can get together and pair on that, and then I can level up by watching them work. And because I have enough context around the other things that they're working with, I tend to pick it up pretty quickly but but it's nice because then you can kind of work your way up. And so you find other craftsmen who have complementary skill sets to yours, and you can still continue to move up as a professional or as a craftsman. Absolutely. I have another question, and uh, that is, and I know I'm going to tick some people off with my opinion on this, but that's fine. Um, oh, I'm, I can't wait. 
The the third point on the manifesto is a community of professionals. And so I'm curious as to what you guys consider to be professionals. I'm so ticked off right now. <laughs> oh, just just wait until I tell you. Darn you, Chuck. I'm ramping up. My fury is ramping up. But but what do you guys think? I want to hear what you think first. Well, you know, to me, the community is is uh, people who are, yeah, I mean, if you look at the definition of community originally, right, it'd be a bunch of people living in this same place that interact with each other on a regular basis and hopefully improve the environment for everybody. That's, to me, that's the community. There's online communities. There's communities that sit in the same room together. I think there's a lot of folks who their only community is, is the online community. And there's people, quite, quite honestly, in my shop that just about the only community is the one we have here. And that's great because we have guys who are connected to both communities and they bring the online community in. And others just, you know, we learn from each other internally. But it's really a give and take to try to, you know, make everything better for the rest of them. The professional part, do you get paid? You're professional. All right. So that that's where I'm going to disagree with you a bit. And that is that when we talk about professionals or pro whatever, one example that usually comes up, at least when I'm talking to my dad, is pro golfers. Okay. So I'm going to use them as an analogy really quickly. So pro golfer, he is somebody who gets... This is the technical definition. They get paid a certain amount, and if you get paid over a certain amount in a year um, to play golf, so then you're a professional. So if you win a hole-in-one contest and you win a car, that puts you into the professional bracket. You've earned enough money or gained enough, uh, you know, something of value from from golfing within that year, and you basically gain pro status. However, when you see them go and play at the tournaments, you see them go um, and, you know, do press uh, stuff. They're, they're dressed a certain way. They look a certain way. They talk a certain way. And to me, that, that also falls in with professionals. Now, I'm not saying that a professional has to go to work every day in a shirt and tie. But if you're dealing with a client, then you should dress appropriately um, if you're dealing with them face-to-face. If you're talking to them, you probably shouldn't be cursing at them. You should probably be polite to them. Um, you know, things like that. And and I think that all falls in with professionalism. And so I, I'm not saying that you have to be uptight, but I see a lot of behavior out there from quote-unquote professionals that I don't feel like is professional. And I, I really feel like in a lot of cases, I see this much more in, in the more open source communities than I do in um, the iOS community, but I know there are people out there like this out there too. Um, but the thing is, is just, you know, I mean, put a good face on and and you know, represent yourself well and represent the community well. I think it goes back to the community of professionals. If, if you're really trying to make things better for everybody, you're going to behave in a professional way as you're describing that. So it's really a, maybe, maybe, maybe the wording should be a community of professionalism because professional, again, it just means you're paid. It doesn't mean you're going to get paid very long. Some of the things you just described, if you're, if you're cursing your client, guess what? You're not going to get paid very long by them. And that's, you know, I think there's a lot of guys out there that I don't know what they do for a living because I've, I've spent a lot of time interviewing people who, and people pay you, <laughs> you know, the, the, can you tell me who pays you? And I'll try to find out, like, I'll try to find out why. But there's a lot of good folks out there, unfortunately, I think, who are, quote, professionals. They are getting paid by somebody. And uh, why, I don't know. I don't know who would pay some of these folks. Well, there's the notion of, like, there's the cheaper, you know, there's the sort of a wide range of the cost of software development and there's def- there's always going to be like cheaper labor. The, the, the problem is, is that the ramifications of choosing cheaper labor, labor and having it go wrong are uh, way more expensive than 
uh, say, you know, paying for the right way. I mean, it's the same thing if you buy a cabinet from Walmart versus buying it from like an actual like woodworker. There's going to be like a vast difference in quality, right? One of it's going to last longer. It's not going to topple over and, you know, ruin the things that are inside of it or whatever. So there's, there's definitely like the perception of like, what, what are you getting? And I, you know, if, if somebody's going to mow your lawn, you're going to go for the cheapest, you know, the cheapest labor you can find, right? There's kind of some of that mentality still in our industry. Yeah, but I've, I've certainly found that there's people who are cheaper and there's people who are more expensive and that has nothing to do with the quality of their work. I've certainly had people who, you know, I've looked to hire them as subcontractors or whatever, and they price themselves out of the ballpark. And, you know, when I first hear their price, it's like, okay, let me see. How good do you have to be to be worth that? And they say something or do something in the midst of the conversation, which convinces me they're not worth it because I don't know if I can work with this guy. He's got too big an ego or, mm-hmm. or whatever else it is. Yeah, certainly uh, I mean, price other- doesn't imply quality, right? But, yeah, and I've seen people who crank out websites for peanuts that do a really good job at it. Now, you know, I'm not, I'm not comparing websites with significant web applications, but, um, you know, I, I've been amazed at, at sometimes people who I think, yeah, they're, they're cheap and they are very professional. They do a good job. You talk to them, they quickly grasp what you want. They quickly produce something that's really good. And, uh, they don't realize how underpaid they are in some cases. And, but they're cranking it out so fast or making a good living. And, but so that's know, kind of, a, folks. <laughs> that's kind of something that will balance itself out, right? Like the laws of nature, that person will eventually realize that they're in high demand, that they're, that they're doing right by their clients and they will start charging more, hopefully. And then there are the people who realize the pricing structure of our industry and they're pretty good at talking the talk and will overprice themselves. And, you know, eventually those people might uh, realize that they're not finding any more work. I, I kind of feel like those things naturally solve themselves. Uh, but I do kind of get, I get frustrated from time to time when I, when I see, you know, always, you know, companies always looking to hire, you know, the junior developer because they cost less or trying to, uh, you know, do offshore because it's going to cost like one third in labor or whatever. Uh, and not really fully understanding the ramifications of that choice. Right. Cause it costs them 10 times in maintenance after. Sure. I mean, I, I forget who, where the stat come from, but you know how like, you know, a, a senior developer who, you know, might cost like 50% more in salary or maybe a hundred percent more will, uh, is, you know, way more effective than, you know, like up to eight times more effective. I can't, I can't remember the source of that original quote, but you know, 87% of stats are made up, but it, there's some <laughs> truth. There's some truth to that notion that, you know, the person who is, uh, has a watchful eye for quality and has all these, you know, sort of soft skills that knows how to communicate with other developers and the client and is a true professional. Those people are going to save you money as opposed to, you know, a, a bunch of people who aren't necessarily concerned with those things. That's Steve yeah, McConnell. And, yeah. The, uh, the folks that do that, even some, the, first of all, you got to make sure they're not just self-proclaimed senior developers. But the other thing that I've seen is, I've, I've told people in our shops, you know, I'll have apprentices do things on a project. And the key thing is you need to have the people doing the simple things. You can have, you can have cheap people doing simple things and, uh, more expensive people doing the harder things, but you need to have somebody who knows the difference. You know, the, and if you don't have a senior person who knows the difference, you can say, you know what? This is simple enough. You know, this apprentice over here, I've been working with him for a little while. He can just knock that out. Right. And if, <laughs> If you don't have the wisdom to recognize 
what that is. And it's a very dynamic thing. I mean, that can, that can change four times in a day. It's not like the project is hard or simple. In any given project, you're going to have things that are hard and things that are simple. And usually it's the, 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 the craftsman who figure, figures out the difference, sets a direction, wants a direction set. Then you can farm out pieces to cheaper labor who are going to learn and eventually be lifted up to the, to the craftsman level. But, yeah, uh, but I mean, like you said, that they're hourly rate. It's, you know, I, I tell people, look, are you buying hours? Or are you buying a solution? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I, I think that you can also, you know, like, you know, I agree with everything you just said, except that you can't just like lob it over to a team of junior developers. I think there needs to be that leadership that can help raise the, you know, raise the skill level and, and coach these folks. Not that junior developers are bad. Everybody's got to start somewhere, but you need to have that mentorship capability for you to grow. Otherwise, right. you're granted a solution, you do it the best you can, but you have no way of like sort of measuring your own progress, right? Right, and that goes to the junior developers having the senior people around them to review their code and do all that kind of work. So it's not that you're just giving it to a junior developer and closing your eyes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think one of the, the kind of the anti-patterns or something that I see clients sometimes using is is to kind of think of these things as fungible resources, right? I have I have four JC or I have four junior resources and two mid-level resources and and three senior resources and I'm going to allocate work to those resources. I think if you stop if you stop thinking of of resources and start thinking of uh people in, a, in on a team and allocate uh work to the team and 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 trust the team to kind of balance that work amongst themselves then then you get the best of both worlds where you can kind of blend the um, blend the, the cost, if you will, from from a, a, a purely purely kind of financial point of view without having to kind of without losing the perspective of, of, of improving the folks inside of that team. Absolutely. And, yeah, that, and that's what we sell here. <laughs> and I think really when, when it comes down to it, it's um, what we've just been talking about is is this kind of fallacy of cost versus value. Like, uh, it doesn't really matter how much something costs; it matters how value, how much value it's providing, right? Like Wait, try, something. Try try something, selling that argument to clients. We have to do that all the time. I mean, it doesn't matter how much it costs. Yes, it does. I have a wallet and has a finite number of bills in it. I mean, we, we do we do have that discussion a lot with with clients. I mean, Fortworks is we're very expensive, right? Like, and and there's absolutely uh, alternative uh, consultancies that are a lot cheaper and. So I have that conversation with clients fairly regularly. Like you guys are too expensive, and and we, yeah, we have I mean, I I, I definitely see that as well. I had a friend who uh, who started a consultancy, and when companies were asking him, you know, about rates, instead of telling him the rate, he would say, "Oh, we're the most expensive in Austin," uh, and they would kind of like take a step back. And he's like, "Well, you know, when you've had your fun with the smaller shops who charge less, and you're not satisfied, then come talk to me." Uh, so if you have the results to back it up, and you have the reputation, uh, then then that certainly will work. Uh, yeah, the trick because that doesn't sound conceited at all. Yeah, <laughs> the trick is to explain that the upfront cost is just the down payment on the software. Yeah, right. Yeah, you're not buying a. Ca- it's not a capital cost. It's uh, you know, you're going to need to to live with this thing and build it and and evolve it over time and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's kind of sad though. That that I and I I've kind of I find it a little bit depressing that we're in an industry where we almost just have to tell. Certain types of clients who are looking for work, we almost have to tell them, "Well, sure, go go and use those cheap guys and um, and learn your lesson, and and we'll talk to you later on." Like I've, I don't know, I've, it's kind of sad that that's the state. Well, some of the like, some of the thing I think about being a craftsman is just try to figure out 
you know, when I have somebody come into my shop, it's what are you, what are you willing to invest in what you're trying to get? And then try to figure out, okay, how do we get you closer to your expectations for your budget? And then, it, and then is that worth it to you? And then, you know, it's, it's professional and it's craftsmanship to tell them you can't get what you're asking for for that amount of money. And anybody tells you that you can is either lying to you or naive. And I've told people that many times. And if they choose to believe you or not, that's up to them. But, you know, it's professional and it's craftsmanship to do that. And and part of the idea is a craftsman is somebody says, boy, I, I want something on a budget. Uh, try to figure out what can fit within their budget rather than just say, ah, oh, you know, you don't have a million dollars. You don't have a half a million, whatever, whatever your price is. We're not interested in talking to you. That reminds me of the, the story of squirrel burgers. Have you guys heard that one? Mm-hmm. Must be a Texas uh, thing. <laughs> <laughs> squirrel! Ouch. I did hear about it in Texas. Uh, yeah, I, I'll summarize it here. I, I heard this from uh, when I was taking scrum training back in like 07 or something. And my scrum trainer told the story and it was about, uh, you know, estimates and, you know, you, you estimate something and it takes six weeks and they really say, they say, no, I really need it in five weeks, no later. And, uh, you know, that means somebody is sort of negotiating your estimate for you. And without sacrificing quality, there's really no way you can do this. So, you know, you just have to be careful with, like, how you engage in those types of scenarios. Uh, the, the thing about the squirrel burger is, is sort of like you, you're running a restaurant and this guy comes in and asks for a burger and uh, fries and a shake and it costs seven fifty, but he only has $2. So... At this point, the, you know, the business owner gets kind of creative and says, well, you know what? I don't need to use the expensive beef. I can go around back and pick up the dead squirrel that's outside and serve that to him and charge him the $2. And then, you know, hopefully we're both happy. Uh, except, you know, that guy will return again or perhaps the next customer will, you know, will, will do the same. You know, your manager is going to start realizing that you can negotiate your estimates and sacrifice quality. Uh, I'm sort of butchering the story. I'll, I'll make a link to the, the full story. But, I, you know, I, I really think that, uh, that it's a serious problem when, when people start negotiating your estimates for you. And so, you know, the moral of the story is just kind of don't ship crap to meet a short deadline. You need to, like, be able to have those conversations with customers to, you know, reduce scope or, you know, slightly, maybe, maybe you can deliver the same feature, but with a slightly different vision that is cheaper to implement, but isn't necessarily sacrificing quality in the software. Yeah, because it's your, it's like, I, I see this a lot with like people, um, programmers saying, you know, like, how do I get my manager to allow me to do pair programming or to allow me to write unit tests? And I get very frustrated with that. And I kind of tell them, like, your job is to write good quality code. That's your job. Like, you don't go to your manager and say, can I please do, do a good job? You do a good job. Cause I mean, particularly for a non-technical, uh, manager, they might not, they don't really understand. They don't see the internal quality of the software going down because they keep pushing for deadlines to be to be kind of shortened or whatever. And that's not their fault. That they're not. They don't have that skill set, and they're not in the code, so they don't know that that they they don't have the opportunity to see the quality of your code slowly degrading over time. So it's your responsibility as a professional. And it goes back to that kind of thing about professionalism to um to not let to not let your team produce crap. Well, the one thing that I hear this a lot is that a craftsman signs his work. And ultimately, back in the day when they were actually, you know, making physical products, they really did. They put their name on the work. And uh, if your journeyman or your apprentice made it 
and uh, you know you you sold it, you still put your name on it, and so um, it, it's the same kind of thing here. I mean, you know, take pride in your work, take pride in what you're putting out there. Um, people are going to see the commit logs for whatever you're working on. They're going to see your comments in the code, and they're going to know that you worked on it. And you don't, you know, and and you know, besides your reputation or anything else. I mean, I would be a little bit embarrassed if somebody came out and said, well, I've worked on some of Chuck's code, and it's sort of poor code. And so, you know, it, I, I would much rather have somebody come out and say he did it right. He's definitely at that level. And, uh, you know, that that's the kind of pride I take in my work, and, and it's important to me to, to put that across, both for my clients and for anyone else who comes along to work on the code. It's a good way of thinking about it, signing your work. Yeah, Xcode does that for you, right at the top. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so does Git. You set yeah. those variables and you push it to the server. It has your name right there on it. All right, well, let's go ahead and do the picks then. Let's let Pete start us off this week. You always let me go early on. I'm very appreciative of the check. <laughs> the check is in the mail. I have two two picks to uh, this week. The first one, I can't resist it. I'm sorry if I'm stealing someone else's, but um, the book Pragmatic Thinking and Learning, which we kind of talked around a couple of times during this episode. I, I suspect I've picked this before because I, I love this book and I always tell people about it. It's it's about how your brain works. It's about kind of uh, learning models and the way that you interact with people and the way that your perspective of things changes how you see the world around you versus other people and lots of kind of like hand-wavy, touchy-feely stuff. But um, I kind of describe it as the most important non-technical, the most valuable kind of non-technical book I've I've read, so really, really highly recommend it. It's awesome. And it's a fun kind of geeky read. It's, it's written for software developers, so it refers to your brain as like a dual-core CPU with a single bus to your memory and like lots of fun analogies that will make you feel less uh, freaked out by the hand-wavy, uh, touchy-feely stuff. So that's good. And then my second pick is a blog post from a colleague of mine uh, called My Life with Code Reviews. So this is a, a fellow Fort Worker who, who wrote up actually from before he was at Fort Works, uh, two kind of contexts where he was working in an organization, uh, or in teams that were doing code reviews. Um, one of these was a good situation. One of them was a bad situation. And so it's a very interesting kind of thoughtful analysis of what he, when he thinks code reviews work and when he thinks they don't work. And this is kind of, yeah, feeds into that kind of the, the debate maybe about code reviews versus pair programming and, and stuff like that. So it's a good it's a good read. I, I recommend it. And I recommend his blog in general. He's is very good, very smart guy. And that's it for me this week. Awesome. Andrew, what are your picks? Uh, I have two picks today, and they're neither one related to what we've talked about, but they're both uh, things that I have gotten a lot of use out of. And I, I must admit, I'm kind of stealing these from Ben. So I don't know if you've seen, but he did a, a CocoConf talk on tools for iOS developers, and there's a he, he put up a blog post, and these are both on there. But uh, the first is a, a little app called Code Runner, and this is a, a Mac app that is basically a text editor that knows how to compile and run a bunch of different languages. And it's I, I use it all the time for running quick snippets of code that I just want to test. Um, I use it a lot when I'm like writing Stack Overflow answer, and I want to create a really small self-contained example and test it without firing up Xcode and creating a project. So it's um, it's not free, but it's five bucks, which is well worth it, I think. And then the other one is a an app called Quick Radar that is also a Mac app that lets you. Yes. Sorry. 
plus one. Oh, plus one. Yeah. <laughs> so quick, quick radar, um, lets you submit bugs to, to radar, which is Apple's bug reporting tool without actually having to use the radar web interface, which is a joke, basically. I mean, I, I seriously laugh when I start, when I go to the, the website because it looks like it was written in 2001 and has not been touched since then. It doesn't make you nostalgic of like Netscape or something. (laughs) Well, they just barely updated the message that said requires Safari 1.0 or later. (laughs) Um, Did you see the, uh, the, the redesign that came out like silently and then was reverted a couple days later? (laughs) Yeah. It looks, it looks like an iPad. Yeah. It looks like an iOS 6 iPad. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think, I think we all kind of know why that went away so quickly. So but. real quick, not to hijack your picks, uh, quick radar is awesome, but it doesn't work if you're trying to submit crash reports. Right. Uh, if you say it's a crashing bug, the, the, the site now requires you to upload a crash report, which that tool doesn't let you do. So the last couple, I was wondering why they weren't able to be posted. It was because they were crashes. So I had to do that on the web. Yeah, it won't, it won't let you upload files at all, which you sometimes want to upload files even for non-crash bugs if you have like a, a little sample project or something that reproduces it. But I think the developer said he's um, working on adding file uploads, so hopefully he can do that soon. It, it, even so, for, for bugs that you don't need to upload a file, it's a great quick way to to type in a bug and send it to Apple. So those are my picks. Awesome. Ben, what are your picks? Okay, so I've got uh, four. We'll try to get through them quickly. The first one, I was just in Oregon my home state and I really love it there. And I spent a few hours at the rogue ale house and I had a rogue brutal bitter IPA, which is really good. Plus one. Yes. And, uh, then I was in the made, made in Oregon store for bringing back gifts for my kids. And I picked up a Portland state IPA, which I had never heard of before again by rogue. Turns out that's the same beer just rebranded. So plus one for that because I get to drink the good beer again. Uh, I need then, to start doing beer picks. What am I thinking? Oh, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you did. I actually had a couple of yours. Uh, I need to continue discuss, doing so. beer picks. Continue I need doing to beer resume. Picks. Yes. The next one, maybe I don't know. Are we like a family-rated podcast? I'll censor myself uh, just this time. <laughs> it's the BS generator. This thing is was made in oh I don't know ninety five I don't know when it was made uh, this this website but you click a button and it generates a random web economy BS generator so I just clicked it and it says synergize efficient e services so uh, anyway this is kind of a fun little tool to play around with and it's surprisingly still relevant today and then my last two picks are just a couple of apps I've been playing with on my phone. Uh, the first one is called Seven Little Words. It's a word game where you get uh, word segments, so like uh, three to four letter tiles, and um, then you get a list of descriptions, and you have to sort of piece together words that fit the descriptions. And it's a really, it's a really good game that you can play just sort of casually. There's no time limit or anything like that. Uh, and then the last one, uh, Plants vs. Zombies 2, which is pretty fun. It's a little bit of a in-app purchase landmine, but uh, so far I haven't had to purchase anything. So so anyway, those are my picks. Awesome. Uh, Rod, what are your picks? All right, I just have one pick today, and uh, it's called LS Newsletter Invite. It's a, some code that lets you present a newsletter sign-up, nice-looking newsletter sign-up um, dialogue in your iOS app. And that's useful because a lot of people complain they, they can't talk to their customers on the I, iTunes store. And uh, so you get them to sign up for your newsletter and then you can converse with them. So that's my pick. 
Cool. Jane, what are your picks? So I noticed a common theme about what we were talking about today. Chuck, you talked about kind of representing yourself well as a professional. Ken mentioned, you know, getting along with the client with your clients, kind of important. And we also talked about how how do we explain our maybe our higher rates to our clients that versus a different competitor. You know, a lot of us got into tech because we know how to interface with computers better than people. You know, computers make sense, people not so much. So how does a tech person kind of develop kind of these kind of soft skills? So for the past few years, I've been a part of a Toastmasters group uh, in in Minnesota. We're actually a tech masters group. Uh, we're called tech masters. We're all IT people. But if you do a lot of coding, uh, I'd recommend checking out Toastmasters. There's probably a, a group nearby. Uh, maybe check out a, a company that has kind of a large software team. You might get some people that are kind of on the same page. But that's something that's really kind of helped me be able to explain what's important to me uh, going forward. So that's my pick, Toastmasters. Awesome. All right. So I'm going to pick a couple of things here. The first one is exorcism.io, and it's E-X-E-R-C-I-S-M.io. And it is a series of exercises for whatever language or languages you want to program in. It was started by Katrina Owen, who's on the Ruby Rogues podcast. And I've really been having fun with that. Another pick, kind of a fun pick that uh, I've been playing on my iPhone, it's called Four Picks, One Song. Um, I was playing Four Picks, One Word for a while, and that was fun. But my wife uh, got me hooked on this other one, and, and it's a lot of fun. So it gives you four pictures, and then you have to uh, use the letters that they give you to uh, spell out the name of the song that it's trying to give you the hints for. Um, lots of fun, uh, super way to go. And then one other pick that I have, and this is just in general, is go out to your users groups. There's a great, uh, there are a couple of great Cocoa Heads groups out here in Utah. There are a bunch of other uh, groups all over the place. If you want to go find Cocoa Heads or some other group that uh, does programming, it, it's really an excellent way to meet new people, be exposed to new ideas, and just uh, get involved. So um, anyway, those are my picks. Ken, what are your picks? Well, uh, I was going to say pragmatic thinking and learning. We got beat to that one and, uh, situated learning book, which, uh, it, although it's, I think it was written in 91. It's really good. Uh, I think I found that sometimes reading outside of our domain is very helpful. Um, I learned a lot from reading architecture books early on and, you know, patterns and things like that. And, uh, this is certainly, certainly very helpful in understanding the importance of contextual learning. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll recommend people that they go check out those books. Ken, if people want to get a hold of you or um, hire you or anything like that, how do they find you? Uh, RoleModelSoftware.com should do it. Awesome. All right. We'll, we'll wrap up the show then. Thanks for coming, guys, and thanks for coming, Ken. We'll catch you all next week.